Well, good morning. They say there's personality type A and type B. And uh, type B is like Jill and type A is like me. Type B like to get to the airport early with plenty of time to spare, sit down in the lounge, read a book and relax. Type A like to get there without a minute to spare, uh, almost running up the gate before the plane leaves, flashing the boarding place, not a minute lost. Type B press the traffic light button once and then they wait. Type A knows you've got to press it a few times because, you know, surely that must make it faster. Type B don't mind driving slowly. In fact, that's relaxing for them. Type A, always in a rush, get frustrated if there's a slow car in front. Maybe you're identifying with type A or type B yourself. Type B like to have assignments finished well early, before the deadline. Type A like to find other things to do and then do the assignment at the last minute and hand it in just before the due date. Now, in case, yes, I'm a type A person. Or maybe that's just the politically correct way of saying I'm impatient. I hate waiting. And I think that's why I like today's passage so much. It's where the action starts. As we're reading it, it sort of came alive, didn't it? You remember what we've been looking at earlier in Luke? It's, it's not just uh, the person who announces that Jesus is coming, John the Baptist. It's not just his birth. It's the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who's going to announce Jesus. It's almost like that bit in the movies where the credits are coming up, setting the background scene, and I like to just flick through to where it starts. But Jill wants to sort of sit back and watch the credits and get the feel for what's coming. Now, what happens in Luke 1 to 3 is important. Very important, that's why Luke wrote it. And he said he's writing an orderly account so that we can know the truth of what we're reading. But in Luke 4, Jesus begins his public ministry and it's with a bang. Let's pick it up, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. That's a pretty good start. And then in verse 16, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, which is the town where he grew up. Back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Luke, a lot of the action was in Nazareth. We're back there now, and it's the Sabbath. That's the Saturday. That's the days the Jews went to synagogue, like kind of like church. And Jesus goes to church or synagogue with his family, I assume, and he stands up, and Jesus seems to be on the Bible reading that day, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what Jesus reads, Luke 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He went there each week, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. We've been working our way throughout Isaiah over the previous weeks and we've had various people reading it for us. We're not actually up to Isaiah 61, this bit that Jesus read yet. 
But when we get there, we will see that Isaiah 61 is about a person, and it's probably the person that we've already seen in Isaiah, the, the servant, who will bring about a change in the nation of Israel. In 61, we'll find he'll preach good news, he'll set people free, and he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The year of the Lord's favour is probably talking about the year of Jubilee. What that was, it was in the Old Testament, it was established in Leviticus 25, if you want to look it up. Every 50 years, debts would be cancelled and God's people could start over again. See, when they went into the promised land, each family, each clan got their own portion of land. But if things went badly for you, if you did some bad business deals, uh, if you just had a bad year or whatever, if you'd lost your family land, if you had to sell everything because you were broke, if, you, if even you and your family had to go essentially into slavery and work for someone else, in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, the trumpet would blow and every family could return to their home soil. So it doesn't matter how badly things were going to you for you, it was a fresh start. Let's start all over again. And the idea was, you know, if you wanted to buy a piece of land, it would be calculated on how many years to the Jubilee. Because if there was 49 years to the Jubilee, you got 49 years worth of crops. If there's just one year to the Jubilee, well, you've only got the land for one year, then it goes back to the original owners. What a great idea. So no matter how bad life got, debts are cancelled, we all have a fresh start. Now, they're not actually sure if the year of Jubilee um, really got going and happened in Israel, but God commanded it. It was meant to be the way that it would happen. So Isaiah 61 is looking forward to this future day for Israel when God would send a messenger to announce the year of Jubilee. And there would be freedom for prisoners, sight to blind people, and debts forgiven, a fresh start. Now, I don't know how many times Isaiah 61 would have been preached in Nazareth. I reckon it was a pretty popular passage. Uh, and after it was read, someone would probably get up and say something like this. What a wonderful promise in Isaiah 61 that one day God will send his special messenger and we'll all be set free. And look, for us here, things are not going well. We don't have a king. But one day we'll be set free. God promises it. Let's wait for that day. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Look at what he says, verse 21, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Isaiah 61 is here, right now. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has come to set Israel free. And as you read on, people respond differently. They're amazed in verse 22, but then they can't believe this is their own local boy, little old Jesus who grew up in front of them. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And that leads to a bit of a strange discussion about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were two prophets sent to Israel, but they actually helped people outside of Israel. And Jesus kind of provocatively points this out. Elisha was sent to help a widow outside of Israel. Elijah and Elisha healed Naaman who was outside of Israel, not Jewish. I tell you the truth, verse 24, Jesus continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many people in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus seems to be saying not only is a prophet not welcome in his hometown, in fact, he will go outside of Israel. And this really stirs them up. In fact, they want to kill him and throw him off the cliff. They're highly offended by it. But it does raise the question, doesn't it? Is Jesus here for the nation of Israel? If he's here to proclaim freedom for prisoners, what prisoners? Because as you read on in Luke, there's no kind of hunger strikes or public rallies outside of jails demanding that innocent people who shouldn't be in jail are released. He doesn't try and come be become part of the Jewish leadership where he can have a say in the future of Israel. In fact, the opposite, in John 6, you read the people came to him and they wanted to make Jesus king and he doesn't let them. So if that is the case, if he doesn't seem to be political, if he's not an activist, how will Jesus bring about change in the world? Well, let's read on. Because in chapter 4, in the rest of it, Jesus does start setting people free one by one. What does he free them from, though? Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Quite spectacularly, Jesus drives out a demon out of a man. And so we see Jesus' enemy, it's not the Romans, it's not the Jewish leaders, Jesus' enemy is evil itself. His enemy is Satan. Now that makes sense of what we saw last week when Jesus began by battling with Satan himself. Jesus has come to free people from evil and Satan. And to give you a glimpse of what that might look like to be free from Satan, Jesus then goes on and heals people and gives people life. In verse 38 and 39, he goes to the house of Simon's mother-in-law. She has a fever and it says, Jesus bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Literally, the word is it released her. The same word as in Isaiah 61, I've come to bring release. She got up and began to wait on them. And as you read on in Luke, it keeps on happening. Jesus heals a leper. In the next week's chapter, which we're going to look at, he forgives people of their sins. He raises a dead girl back to life. He frees another demon-possessed man. He heals a sick woman. There's a little boy with an evil spirit who Jesus heals. There's a crippled woman. There's a blind beggar. And then there's the times where it just says everyone came to Jesus and he healed them. Jesus is setting people free. 
Right here in the ministry of Jesus, Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release to the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the people love it. They can't get enough of it. In, in fact, down in verse 42, Jesus early in the morning goes out to a quiet place by himself where he wants to pray. And what happens? The people hunt him down and they find him and they try and stop him from leaving. They want him to stay. He's so good. But he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also. That is why I was sent. You would want him to stay, wouldn't you? He'd be better than a doctor. Everyone healed of all their sicknesses. But if you're like me, type B, type A, you know, just want everything, want it now, impatient, or maybe even if you're type B, this raises all kinds of questions, I think. If Jesus came to fulfill Isaiah 61, why is there still sick people today? Why is there still blind people 2,000 years later? Why are people still oppressed? God can heal. God does heal. But not like this scale. I mean, everyone who is sick is brought to Jesus and he's healing them all completely. And we're not the first ones to ask such questions. Uh, even John the Baptist himself has similar questions. Turn over to Luke 7. We're going to be looking at this in a few weeks, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But turn over to Luke 7, verse 18. John the Baptist, his disciples hear about everything that's happening, the blind seeing and the lame walking, and they come and tell John about it. And look at John's response, John, Luke seven eighteen. John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? See, John seems to be having doubts. This was the John who stood up and said, he is the one to come. And he seems to be healing people, but John's saying, are you the one to come? Or is there someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, why is John asking, are you the one to come? Because he said he was the one to come. I think John's starting to have doubts because John the Baptist in, in Luke 7 is in jail. So where's the freedom for the oppressed if John's in jail? John the the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the prophet, what's he doing in jail? In fact, John doesn't get out of jail. He gets beheaded. Why is that going on if Jesus came to bring release? So the question, is Jesus the one? And I think that can be a similar question for us, can't it? Because how come when you read on in the New Testament and you look at the churches and you look at people who are Christians, how come they still seem to struggle with sin if Jesus brings release? How come our bodies are still falling apart and we get sick? And in fact, in Corinthians, Paul says our outward bodies are wasting away. And why is there still oppression 2,000 years after Jesus announces freedom? Well, I want to suggest an answer. Turn with me back to Isaiah 61, where Jesus was reading from. 
Isaiah 61. Just after Psalms and Proverbs. I mean, last week when we were looking at the baptism and there was stuff we weren't sure of, we just go back and look where Jesus is quoting from and it all becomes pretty clear. I think it's similar here. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and this is the Bible reading that Jesus stood up and read that day. I want you to notice where Jesus stopped reading. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, and so on. Jesus, when he is reading Isaiah 61, stops mid-sentence. Now, that would be a bit strange. You're up here doing the Bible reading and you don't go to the end of the verse or the end of the chapter. You just stop mid-sentence. No wonder everyone's eyes were on him as he finished reading. He stopped halfway through verse 2. Not that they had verses, but they did have sentences. He stops after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And what's he stopped before? What comes next? And the day of vengeance of our God. Now that's strange. You don't normally end your Bible reading mid-sentence. Did the scroll run out? Did Jesus kind of balk at the idea of vengeance, you know? Oh, judgment, we better stop there. That might upset people. I don't think so because in Luke uh, 10 and 12 and so on, he goes uh, strong on judgment. So why did he stop there? I think he stopped there so that he could say, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Because the first half of Isaiah 61, 1 and true, 1 and 2, was fulfilled. The day of the Lord's favour is here. People now, through Jesus, can have their sins forgiven. God has started cancelling debts. But the second half of verse 2, the day of God's vengeance, that is not here yet. If Jesus stood up and read that, he couldn't say, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Because the day of God's vengeance is in the future and that is the day when all evil will be done away with. And you can read about it in Isaiah 63. The day of God's vengeance is when Satan and sin and death will be completely destroyed. Here no more. But that day is not here yet. We're waiting for it. And so those things still exist. And so Jesus stops mid-sentence, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The time of God's favour, it's here. Now if you read on in the New Testament, that is exactly what you find. In the New Testament, the, the people in the New Testament church are living between the day of God's favour when forgiveness has started and the day of Jesus' return when judgment will come. Turn with me, we'll leave Luke for this morning. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
there's some people who seem to be getting a little impatient. They're wondering if this day will ever come. In 2 Peter 3, in verse 4, it says, Where is this coming, Jesus promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has, since the beginning of creation. They're getting impatient. Now have a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because here is Peter's reply. When is the day of God's vengeance coming? We want it to come now, but when is it coming? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. See, the day of God's vengeance is coming. But it's not here yet. Jesus did not bring it in yet. Why not? Verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. If you're like me, you get impatient. But when God brings his kingdom in fully and does away with all evil and all death and all sin, that is not good news if you're part of the problem. And for some people who aren't ready, that day will be a terrible day. And so God is holding off so that people can come to Jesus, find God's favour, have their debts cancelled. Forgiveness has been announced. And we live here in 2012 between those two days, the day of God's favour where he's opened the doors to forgiveness and the day of his vengeance where he will return to judge. And what do we do in those two days? What's happening? Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, don't look it up, I'll just read it. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's what's happening in this time period. The gospel, the good news of forgiveness is being preached to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, how are you going? At preaching that message, the good news, or supporting those who preach it? Because that's what we're here for. Sure, there's other things we've got to do. We've got to go to work. We've got to do the shopping, we've got to get the car service, we've got to do the washing up, we've got to look after the family. But all those things we are doing as we wait for Jesus to return. And in all, all those things that we do, if we're in line with God's plan, we need to be looking for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. I used to work as an electrical engineer in ABC Radio a um, long time ago now. It was not a Christian environment. They called it the Gay BC, and it was very anti-God, in case you haven't noticed. Most of my time at the ABC was just spent in front of this little computer screen, 
doing what I had to do to be a good worker, to earn my pay. When I was working at the ABC, I discovered that there was another Christian in my department there. And so we started on Friday lunchtimes just meeting together to pray for the other people in the ABC who didn't know Jesus. So every Friday we just booked a room. That was easy to do. We brought our sandwiches along. We spent probably 10 minutes praying together and that was it. And after a couple of years, there were four or five of us. Not because people had been converted, sadly, but because we put up some little posters around the ABC and people heard we were doing it. And so a Christian in the mail department, he joined us. A Christian in the IT department, he joined us. One radio announcer, he joined us, all from different churches. And I can't actually remember a day that all five or six of us were there together. Sometimes there was one, just me or just someone else because I was busy. Sometimes there was two. But each week we just met together to pray for the ABC. And it actually turned out that we organised a little invitation meeting at the ABC and we put posters up around the building and we invited Kel Richards to speak at it. He was a Christian who was in the media. And 30 or 40 people came along. Now, it doesn't always work out as exciting as that. But I wonder if you, at your work, could find another Christian and just meet up with them once a week at lunchtime, five or ten minutes, and pray for the other people at your work. And if there's no Christians at your work, maybe you could find someone else who works near you, meet up with them before work, and pray with them. Maybe you could just walk around the street that you live in and pray for the people who live near you. Because God's plan in this time period is that the gospel would go out, that people would come to know Jesus and be forgiven. All the nations, starting at Jerusalem, even to Dubbo, to Ireland, to Cambodia, to Thailand, to Portugal, to Africa, to Vanuatu. Every month here, we hear about different missionaries who are in different parts of the world. Some of them have gone from Dubbo and they're sharing that message. If you don't support a ministry and you want to, if you don't support a missionary and you want to be on about what Jesus is on about, you need to find a missionary who you can pray for and support. Maybe even look into mission yourself. Next week at church, if you read ahead in Luke, we have a really clear passage on what it means that Jesus forgives people's sins. Jesus stands there and announces sins are forgiven. Maybe you could invite someone along to church next week to hear that message. Because the day of God's favour is here. The doors to forgiveness are open. And that's the good news, and that's the good news we've been given to share. Let's pray. Father God, we know there is only one person who can set us truly free from Satan and sin. And that's your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that when he walked on the earth, we had a glimpse of the power that he had over Satan. Just healing people and bringing people back to life. Driving out demons. And Father, thank you that he actually let himself die on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Thank you that the, the day of the Lord's favour has been announced, that right now you're forgiving people's debts.
that we can have a fresh start with you. And we pray that you just help us to see clearly the time that we live in and live as if Jesus is returning and live as if the judgment day is coming. And we pray for the people around us who don't know Jesus that you would put in our hearts a compassion and a burden to share the gospel with them. We thank you so much for the freedom that we have through Jesus and we thank you that one day when he returns, death and Satan and sin will be completely gone. We look forward to that day. Amen.